Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus? We're going to be looking this morning at Exodus chapter 33. And as you turn there, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are pre-K through fourth grade, they can meet in the back for Children's Church. Well, we are working our way through a sermon series, a topical series on the topic of prayer. We are looking at some of the great prayers of the Bible, uh, seeing how God would teach us to pray as His people, how He might enliven our prayer lives. Uh, the more I've been studying and praying and working through these passages, the more I am convinced that prayer is the often neglected superpower of the church. I think so often we have not because we ask not. And so in this series, our faithful Savior Jesus Christ is going to invite us to ask boldly in His name that the Spirit would do a mighty work in each of our lives, in our city, in our world, and in our church. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading the whole chapter of Exodus 33. We'll begin at verse 1. Again, this is God's Word. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land to w- of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. 
and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I might know know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God. We join our brother Moses in asking that we might see your glory shining in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would speak, for we, your servants, listen. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I read an interesting story about the Fulton Street Revival. How many of you have ever heard of the Fulton Street Revival? Anyone? Maybe a couple of you? Before this week, I had never heard of it at all, so I was learning about it for the first time. Here's what happened. In 1857, the Old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan was moving to a new building. Now, many congregations in downtown Manhattan at that time were selling their buildings as their people were, by and large, moving to the suburbs. Now, at first, the church was going to sell the building, but then they decided to keep it so that they might turn it into a mission building, a home base, if you will, for outreach to different people who worked downtown, business owners and small businessmen, and even the homeless people, many of whom were begging on the streets. To accomplish that mission, they hired a young man named Jeremiah Calvin Lamphere. 
Jeremiah was not an ordained minister, but he spent three months going from shop to shop, meeting with people, sharing the gospel with people, inviting people to come to the mission where they might have a worship service together. Nobody came until Jeremiah Lamphier scheduled a prayer meeting. Now, the first prayer meeting set in the Old North Dutch Reformed Church was to take place at noon on Wednesday, September 23rd in 1857. At 12 o'clock, Jeremiah Lanfear opened the doors and exactly no one came. He looked at his watch. He saw that it was 12.10. Still, no one came. 12.20, he was getting a little bit nervous, looked at his watch, no one came. And then, at 12.30, the doors opened and five businessmen stumbled in to the Old North Dutch Reformed Church. And Jeremiah prayed with them for 30 minutes. Now, the next week, 14 people came to the prayer meeting, then 25, then 50, then 100, and before long, they ran out of space in the building. Neighboring churches started hosting prayer, weekly prayer meetings, as did the local Masonic temple, as did local theaters that they would rent out in order to conduct these prayer meetings. There were so many people praying that eventually they took the weekly prayer meeting and turned it into a daily prayer meeting. Six months into the Fulton Street Revival, 10,000 people were coming together every single day at locations throughout Manhattan to pray. Soon, the revival spread to other cities throughout the Northeast. Boston and Philadelphia started experiencing great revivals of prayer. Then the prayer revival spread to cities in the Midwest, cities like Chicago and St. Louis and Cincinnati and Indianapolis were seeing great revivals in their own cities. Here's an article telling the story from the New York Times, written six months after the first prayer meeting. The author writes, The great wave of religious excitement, which is now sweeping over this nation, is one of the most remarkable movements since the Reformation. It is most impressive to think that over this great land, tens and fifties of thousands of men and women are asking themselves at this time, in a simple, serious way, the greatest question that can ever come before the human mind. What shall we do to be saved from our sin? Eighteen months after the first prayer revival meeting, it's estimated that one million people came to faith in Jesus Christ. In the city of New York alone, 50,000 people out of a city of 800,000 people 
not only made a commitment to Christ, but joined local congregations. They were baptized. Their children were baptized. How did it happen? Humanly speaking, this makes absolutely no sense. Jeremiah Lamphere was not a great preacher. In fact, he wasn't a preacher at all. He wasn't a musician, a singer. He didn't play the guitar. He wasn't a leadership expert. He wasn't a church growth guru. He didn't write a best-selling book. Jeremiah Lamphere was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed. He prayed down heaven. God came down. And when he did, he led his people to the promised land. This morning, we're going to talk about how to pray for revival. We're going to talk about what happens when God comes down the mountain to lead his rebellious people into the promised land. We're going to talk about how ordinary people, people like Moses, can see the glory of God. Why did Moses pray? How did Moses pray? How did God answer his prayers? Can God do it again? Can God do this right here? What would happen if we learned to pray like Moses prayed? We might need a bigger building, which, among all the problems that I have in the world, would be a good problem to have. Amen? Normally, we, we work our way through passages like this, and we have three big ideas, sometimes four or five. I think the record might be 12. But this morning, we have one big idea, one simple proposition that I want us to unpack this morning as we learn to pray with Moses, and it's this. Revival happens when God comes down, and God comes down when we pray. Now, as we look at that one big idea, here's our outline. We're going to ask three big questions of that one big idea. We're going to interrogate it and turn it around in our hands so that we can understand the brilliance and beauty of this prayer. Here's the outline. The first question we're going to ask is, why did Moses pray? What was the occasion of this prayer? The second is, what did Moses pray? And the third is, how did God answer Moses' prayer? How does God smash our idols without smashing us? How does he lead us? How does he guide us? How does he revive our hearts and our souls? Let's take a closer look. Our first big question is, why did Moses pray? Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up, 
out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive, I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, here's the backstory. Earlier in the book of Exodus, we're told that Moses, after leading the people out of the land of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, God had this great exodus, he sent plagues on the land of Egypt, Pharaoh eventually let his people go that they might go to the wilderness and worship him, they were headed to the promised land, but the people sinned. And their sin caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And somewhere during this period, God had called Moses to go up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, where he was to receive the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. Now, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law on top of the mountain, praying and talking to God, the people down below got restless. They lost their faith, and in so doing, they rebelled against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the, house, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who was Moses' brother, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, at this point in the story, Aaron should have rebuked the people. He should have said, Moses is coming back. What you're asking is completely illegitimate. What you're doing is wrong. Why would you ever worship false gods? Don't you remember the Exodus? Don't you remember the plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh? Don't you remember the Passover? Don't you remember how God parted the Red Sea so that our people crossed over on the dry ground? They didn't remember. They forgot God's grace. They forgot God's power. And Aaron was too scared to remind them. He caved. He backed down. He took their gold jewelry. He fastened it into a golden calf. The people worshipped it, and God was angry. Of course he was. His people, who he had called out of the land of Egypt, had betrayed him. They had disregarded him. In a sense, they decentered him. That's going to be a major theme in this chapter because God was supposed to dwell in the center of the people, but where do we find Moses meeting with God? Not in the center, but on the outskirts of the city. In other words, they had marginalized God. 
God was supposed to be in the tabernacle at the center of the camp. The people were supposed to organize their lives around him, but instead they said, Moses is gone. Church is boring. We want new gods. We want you to entertain us. We want our religion to look like every other religion. We, want to, we don't want to be different. We don't want to be distinct. We don't want to stand out. Now Moses was so upset about this that he threw down the two tablets of stone on which were written the Ten Commandments. The tablets broke. God punished his people. Thousands died. And now here we are in chapter 33. Moses intervened on behalf of God's people. God forgave them, but then God said something very troubling. He said, you can go to the promised land, but I'm not coming with you. I'll send one of my angels. You'll get the land. You'll get a land flowing with milk and honey, but you will not get me. In fact, if I go with you, you're so rebellious and so sinful that I will probably destroy you on the way. So you go, I'll stay, the end. Now, I cannot stress to you strongly enough just how catastrophic this is. If this goes through and God abandons his people, then essentially it's over. The book of Exodus is over. The Bible is over. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no salvation. God is essentially saying to them, I want a divorce. I no longer want you to be my bride. I no longer want you to be my people. Here's Peter ends, he writes this, The whole purpose of the Exodus was for God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will be firmly established in the proposed tabernacle. By saying, go ahead, but you're going without me, the events of the previous 32 chapters are being undone. This is not merely a setback It means the end of the road. Why did Moses pray? He prayed because he was desperate for God's grace. He prayed because he was desperate for God's forgiveness. He prayed because there was nothing worse to him than being abandoned by the God that he loved. He said, the promised land means nothing without you. Now, here's a question for all of us, and it's a difficult question. What would you say if God said to you, I will give you wealth and power? I will make all of your dreams come true. I will give you a beach house. And I will give you a Ferrari. And I will give you straight A's. And I will give you the perfect marriage. 
I will allow you to travel and see the sights of the world and you can have anything that your hearts desire. But as a trade-off, as an exchange, you will not have me. You will not know my love. You will not know my power. You will not know my presence. Your children will never speak my name. Your grandchildren will never know who I am. Would you take that deal? Now, sadly, many people would take that deal. Many people want the blessings of God without God. Many of us, including me, try to use God in order to get what we really want. I do this all the time. I want God to bless me with health, with wealth, with prosperity. I've got lists and requests. But do I really want God? Do I really want God in the center of my life? Do I really want to organize my entire being around Him? Now, it's probably worth noting that Satan made the same proposal to Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness. He said, look out among the world, see all the kingdoms of the earth. All of this will be yours if you will simply bow down and worship me. In other words, I will give you the promised land. I will give you the land flowing with milk and honey if you walk away from God. Now, in this story, Moses said what Jesus said, which is, no. No thanks. No way. We've already wandered away from you time and time again. We can't go through this again. We cannot be alone. We cannot be divorced from your presence. Why do we pray? We pray like Moses prayed because we're idolaters too. Our hearts are idol factories. We're stiff-necked people. We need God's forgiveness. We need God's presence. We need God's grace. We are constantly, if we're honest, churning out little golden calves. Little alternative sources for meaning and purpose and joy. Things that we think that we cannot live without things that we grasp hold of when we should be grasping hold of God. When our idols are threatened, we get angry and defensive and we say, I just cannot live without this thing. Revival prayers, prayers that bring new life and new hope and new redemption start with repentance. They start with honesty and transparency. They start with desperation. They start with prayers for reconciliation and restoration with God. If we want our lives to change, if we want our city to change, if we want our world to change in a a powerful, impactful way, 
if we want God to lead us into the promised land, we have to smash our idols. We have to melt our golden calves. We have to say, we don't want the promised land without you. Verse 15, and Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. That's a prayer for grace. That's a prayer for mercy. That's, that's a prayer for spiritual renewal and revival. Second big question what did Moses pray? Now, here is where it gets really interesting. This is an absolutely mind-blowing prayer. After asking God to forgive the people, which God does, after asking God to go with the people, which again, he agrees to do, Moses prays, verse 18, please show me your glory. Now, if you instantly know what that means, maybe you can preach next week because that is the most mind-blowing thing that I have ever heard. What does it mean to see the glory of God? Just trying to wrap my mind around that just takes me to a, another place. Normally, when I'm trying to describe things, I like to do lists and bullet points and point one and point A and point B. This is like a little bit like trying to describe the Grand Canyon with lists and bullet points, right? Grand Canyon, point A, giant hole. True. Point B, it's in Arizona. Also true. And yet, you're not seeing the Grand Canyon. Amen? So how do we describe this seemingly indescribable thing? Well, I tend to associate the glory of God with bright lights. Usually because of Christmas. You remember the Christmas story? Behold, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the, their flocks by night. Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared. The lights of God shone all around them, and they were sore afraid. They were terrified. They came undone. Pastor David was teaching us the book of Ezekiel this morning in Sunday school, and there's this image of the glory of God which shines like a, a rainbow. It's bright and it's colorful and it's effervescent. It's something unlike anything that we've ever seen before. When the prophet Isaiah saw the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he almost had a nervous breakdown. Scripture tells us that he came undone. He unraveled emotionally because God is too perfect. He's too pure. His glory is like a reverse nuclear explosion. Imagine a nuclear bomb that goes off and takes everything apart. God's glory is the nuclear bomb that puts everything together again. Bringing healing and wholeness and love and joy. 
Now, the Hebrew word which we translate glory is the perfect word because you can hear what glory is just by saying the word. Amen? Kavod. Kavod. It means weightiness, which is why we sometimes talk about the weight of God's glory. Another English word that conveys this is matter. Matter. It's solid. It's substance. But it's also importance. God's glory is his transcendent value and worth. It's matter. It's significance. Moses is praying, Lord, help me see how important you are. Lord, help me see how much you matter. Let me see how significant you are. I want to be captivated by you. I want to love you more than anything else in the entire world. I don't want to use you to get something else. I want to see you. Do you ever pray prayers like this? Now again, if I'm honest, I don't often pray prayers like this. I have lists, I have things that I want to happen, I pray, God, would you do this thing? But how often do I pray simply for God? How often do I pray, Lord, show me your glory? What would happen if we prayed like Moses prayed? What would happen in our city, and in our world, and in our families, and in our church, if we said, God, I want you to matter more than anything else in the world. Lord God, I want to be so overwhelmed by your love that I love my neighbors, that I love the poor, that I love the marginalized, that I love the oppressed, that I love people who do not love you. That I love people who do not love me. What would happen if we were captivated by his love? That is the kind of prayer that brings revival. That's the kind of prayer that sets the world on fire. That kind of prayer changes things We need to see God's glory. Now, third big question, last one. How did God answer Moses' prayers? Again, mind-blowing. Now, God answered Moses' prayer for forgiveness in a pretty simple, straightforward way. He says, I forgive you. And not only will I forgive you, I am willing to change course and go with you as you go into the promised land. He said, in effect, I will tabernacle among you. It's like the famous speech from the book of Ruth. Whither thou goest, I will go. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be right there with you, right in the middle of the camp. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you 
by name. God answered Moses' prayer for glory by saying, I will show you my goodness, verse 19. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So far, so good. But, verse 20, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Do you see the dilemma? You see the problem? See, Moses, like all of us, needs to see the glory of God. We need to feel the weight of God's glory. We need to sense how much God matters. We need that tabernacle right there with us, right in the center of our hearts. But we cannot see the glory of God. It's too much. It's too glorious. It's too brilliant. It's too powerful, overwhelming. We are too sinful. The pure light of God's holiness shines in the darkness of our sinful human hearts, and when it does, we we come undone. The light of God's glory extinguishes the darkness of our hearts. Do you, again, do you see the dilemma? Light and darkness cannot coexist. Light must overwhelm the darkness because that's what light does. When you go into a room and you turn on the light switch, you know instantly that the light will overcome the darkness. There is no instance where a working light will be overcome. This is our problem. How do we see the light when there is darkness in our heart? How do we encounter a holy God while we are stained by sin? God proposes a solution. Verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. How do we see the glory of God? God hides us in the cleft of the rock. And the rock, the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament, is Christ Paul's most common way of talking about being a Christian is not even to say the word Christian. He says that we are in Christ. We are in Christ, and by His Spirit, Christ is in us. In other words, to be a Christian is to be hidden in Christ. It's to be covered and clothed by the righteousness of of Christ. Now let's keep going. How do we experience the presence of God? 
Well, in the incarnation, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who lived forever and ever before the foundations of the world, as part of the Godhead, took on human flesh. He became a human being. And being found in human form, he suffered and died on the cross in our place and rose again for our justification filling us with the Holy Spirit so that we might be living temples of the true and living God. Jesus is the answer to Moses' prayer. Listen to what we read in John chapter 1, verse 14. Now, I don't know exactly what John was thinking when he wrote these words, but it's hard to imagine that he wasn't thinking about Moses' prayer. It's too perfect. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father filled with grace and truth. We have access to the holiness of God through Jesus. Jesus, who humbled himself, joining us in the camp, making himself flesh and blood human being, has cleared away all of the sin and darkness in our hearts. When he died on the cross, darkness covered the land. Darkness came into his very heart so that we might receive the light of God's salvation. Jesus is the answer to this prayer. Moses saw the glory of God. He experienced the grace of God. And then in the very next chapter, we are told that he fell down on his face and he worshiped. My friends, that's called revival. That's called renewal. That's something that is independent of techniques or ideas. It's not manufactured. It's divine. It comes from God to us. That happened in the wilderness. It happened in, on Fulton Street in lower Manhattan, Manhattan, and it can happen here if we pray. So let's go to God in prayer. Let's ask God to revive our hearts. Let's ask God to be present with us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's ask God to make all things, starting with us, new. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in our church. I pray, Lord God, that you would do a mighty work in this city. I pray, Lord God, that you would use us to be your ambassadors, that we would shine the light of your salvation even into the darkest places in our city and in our world. Lord God, we come to you confessing that so often we are idolaters, Lord, we did not make literal golden calves, but our hearts are constantly churning out false gods that we worship. Forgive us, Lord God.
Go with us to the promised land. For if we go alone apart from you, then there is no promised land. You are the promised land, Lord God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. It is in his name we pray, in the power of his spirit. Amen.